You're listening to Marginalia. This is Abby Murish, editor of this week's episode, and you're actually listening to part two of this week's recording of Marginalia. In the first part, Josh, Mike, and Brian generally talked about life in Cincinnati and dug a little deeper into Mike and Brian's stories and talked a little bit about what's happening on Xavier's campus through the ministry of CCO. In this part, they're looking at the story of Jesus cleansing the temple and kind of pushing us to consider what that means for our own lives, both personally and as we live in community with one another. So without further ado, here is part two of this week's episode of Marginalia. We are back. All right. Um, Well, this weekend at New City, we looked again at John chapter two, this time at the story that's often called the cleansing of the temple. Jesus goes up to the temple for the Passover and when he gets there, he sees all these uh, market stalls, uh, I think place of trade it's called, uh, the literal translation is something like an emporium, right? He sees animals being sold, he sees money changers, and uh, Jesus gets angry, right? He turns over tables, he makes a whip of cords, he drives out the animals in the cellar. Some have called this his temple tantrum, <laughs> and uh, the temple authorities then respond to Jesus. They say, you know, by what authority do you do this? We, we need you to show us a sign. And then somewhat cryptically, Jesus responds and says, here's your sign. Destroy this temple in three days. I'll raise it again. That was our story this week. And um, yeah, first I just want to hear from you guys. Uh, what do you think we're supposed to make of the anger of Jesus? How does a story like this help fill out the picture? If, if, if we think of a uh, if, if John, the gospel writer, is a little bit like Bob Ross, right, and he's, uh, he's getting, putting in little aspects of the picture, and uh, we're supposed to see the whole thing together, but at the time, you can't always, you know, see what he's going to do with that little bush over here, right? you know, whatever Bob Ross is doing. Um, but John puts this together, and this is part of the portrait. What are we supposed to make of the anger of Jesus? Do you know I heard the other day that Bob Ross took zero dollars? He got paid nothing for that. He did it for free because he loved it. Amazing. That has nothing to do with the question that you asked. No, but now that you brought it up, I know that you love your job. And I think it would be a great gesture on your part if you do it for free. Like that CEO that gave up his millions to, I don't make millions. Um, You know, there's that verse, be angry and do not sin. I think this temple incident really demonstrates that. Like Mm -hmm. this is how you are angry without sinning. Now that's, I don't know if it's impossible for us to do. But this, you know, that verse would maybe be uh, not make a whole lot of sense if we didn't have this incident to show us that this is what this looks like. This is perfectly righteous and non-sinful anger. So a, um, and I don't know that we'll ever understand it fully, but it gives us a fleshed out example of that. Be angry, but do not sin. Yeah, it's, I mean... There's only a couple places in the Gospels where Jesus is angry. There's this. There's the tomb of Lazarus, right? He's angry at death. Uh, and then, I mean, I can think of him, the woes of the Pharisees, and I think it's Luke's Gospel. Um, and to see Jesus... So it's interesting to me because, because you know, we think about the popular stereotype of God. It's always, well, God's angry in the Old Testament, and he's gentle Jesus in the New Testament, which is not true. But here's a direct opposite to that. Here's Jesus showing anger. But it's, it's righteous anger at injustice, um, at at the wrongs in the world, and for me, I, I appreciate that because it it frees me up to look at the wrongs of the world and to be angry about it. To say this is not the way it's supposed to be. This is not right. Um, this hurts. Is there a um, 
we know that there are a lot of warnings in scripture about the danger of anger. A lot of the Proverbs have something to do with that. Of course, uh, a lot of times, um, especially in, in the book of James, anger and the tongue are tied together. What you say, you know, being, being slow to speak, slow to become angry. But uh, you brought up Paul's um, saying, you know, in your anger, do not sin. There, but there seems to be a time you can be good and angry. What, what would it look like if, for example, the church was never angry? Would that be better or worse? And, uh, and why? Hmm. It, it, it would show a complacency um, and a lack of care. I mean, the, the indifference is almost worse than anger or love you know if the anger and love are not opposite but if it's like you know a, a passive indifference just shows complacent shows that you don't care you don't care about the world you don't care about injustice you don't care about these things uh, you know obviously there's christians some christians are known for being angry maybe at the wrong things or in the wrong way like you can be right and still be wrong so you can be um, write about the principle or the issue, but go about it in the wrong way and come off hateful. Um, and that's not good. But if you never cared about anything, it would, I mean, it would show that you, you don't care if you are indifferent and never angry. Um, it would show that you don't care about the least. You don't care about the vulnerable. You don't care about the loss. You don't care about injustice. You don't care when people are suffering. Um, and so that is a, is a detached, non-sort um, of living way uh, you know, it's like, oh, I'm just going to detach from life altogether. And I don't think that's, I don't think that shows love. In some ways, anger is a demonstration of love because it shows that you yeah. care if you're angry for somebody else. Now, if I'm angry because of something that's kind of done unto me, that's a little bit different. You know, this is not Jesus being like personally offended or affronted here. Um, you know, this was much bigger. This was the glory of God. This was injustice, these kinds of things not a petty, um, my feelings are hurt or something like not that. getting cut off in traffic or yeah. 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 yeah is it, it is interesting. You talked about indifference as being really more the opposite of love. It is interesting that, um, you know, the word passion refers to sort of energy toward things, but it also has to do with suffering, right? We mm -hmm. talk about Jesus passion yeah. in Holy mm -hmm. week and it versus, uh, for example, the word cool, you know, we think of cool as, um, something we all desire to be and yet it also means detached mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. and i always think i mentioned bono earlier is my favorite irishman uh he says you know you when you're irish you can't be cool because you're 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 mm. too you're, fired you're, up you're, you're too fired up you're too passionate mm. you know and in the same vein he says you know you can't approach god with with sunglasses on you know you can't be mm -hmm. uh you can't be trying to be cool um when it comes to thinking about the things of god it lends itself to a kind of engagement that then necessarily is going to lead you to being connected to the things uh, that are on God's heart. And when those things, when those norms are violated, uh, then it leads to a kind of anger, I think. Yeah. And I think it's a witness thing too. I mean, you think about, I mean, the, 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 we can look in hindsight at the times in history when the church has been indifferent uh, to injustice. And you think about the institution of slavery in America. I mean, again, there were Christians that were, angry about that uh, and the civil rights movement. I mean, it's a blemish upon the church because people look at that and say, Hey, you know, you're supposed to be about love and justice. And here you are turning a blind eye to these things. Um, to not be angry affects uh, the witness of the church. And it's, it's an affront to the, if the gospel's true, then there's some things we need to be angry about. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and, and I was saying that some people call this Jesus temple tantrum, which I did not use that intentionally on Sunday, even though it's kind of a cute little line. Um, but I don't think it's accurate description mm-hmm. of what it is, right? This is not a tantrum. This is right. intentional. It's directed. And uh, it's connected, you know, even back to the, the prophetic witness of um, what the prophets had against the way the temple institution was working. Mm-hmm. So you think of Malachi chapter 3, when uh, the first verse of, of, of that chapter uh, is often associated with John the Baptist, right, as the forerunner uh, to the coming of the Lord. But then it says, you know, verse 2 is about the Messiah coming to the temple. And when it says he comes to the temple, then Malachi's uh, statement is, who could stand, mm-hmm. right? If he does come to the temple where injustice is happening, who can stand? It says he's going to come like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. And I always think of you know, uh, what the refiner's fire maybe is obvious, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's painful to be refined. Uh, the fuller soap, um, I never really got until I tried to give my dog a bath and uh, watching that experience and what torture it seemed to be mm-hmm. for him. That's that's what it'll be like when, when the Lord comes to clean things up. There's a sense in which that's a painful process, a needed process, but a painful process as well. We do have to be careful, I think, and maybe you guys can... Say, if you, if you have any guardrails that you want to put on it, Brian already did a little bit about watching too much about protecting our own comfort, maybe as a, as, as a way, maybe as our go-to for anger that may not actually be righteous anger. But even in the in your anger, do not sin, we have so many mixed motives, and it's difficult sometimes to figure out how to express things. But there are clearly things, and Mike, you are men- mentioning a litany of them, that we ought to be angry at injustice that exists in the world when God is dishonored, when people are injured, when life is not taken seriously, whether we're talking about the unborn or mm-hmm. the disabled or just life in general, not value the poor or the vulnerable and so on. Um, all those things ought to yield a, a good kind of anger that produces a kind of activism in the life of the church. But beyond that, right, even in those righteous moments, there's always the tendency or the temptation to let that slip into a, a sinful kind of anger. I don't know there are any any ways you can think of guardrails that we ought to be continually recalibrating to make sure we're, we're heeding also all the warnings that Scripture have about anger. Don't do your anger online. Because, mm. I mean, it's very easy to pop off about something. I, I, would, I was just, if you are angry about well, first of all, be angry about the things that God's angry about. That's a great surefire way. If God's not angry about something, maybe you shouldn't be either. Um, but then do that anger face to face, and do it with another person. Um, or yeah, I list, I, I retweeted somebody. Uh, Duke Quan is a pastor in um, Washington D.C. in our in our little family of churches, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, but he said something a few weeks ago. He said habitual vitriol online is actually evidence of a deficient community life. Mm -hmm. Because if you're habitually expressing outrage or vitriol, he says you're not having a face-to-face kind of interaction on a regular basis because when you have face-to-face, you have to go through the process of self-editing. These are his words, Mm -hmm. self-editing, which when you're online and you're anonymous and so on and, you know, behind a keyboard, everybody's 10 feet tall and whatever it may be, um, you don't have to go through that same kind of process of embodied community. And that's important. That, that is probably a good caution um, about making sure your anger is not directed through the virtual world. Yeah, not only is there like the risk of getting punched in the face if you say something nasty to somebody in real life, but there's also another real person standing in front of you. And I think, you know, you have to, to love and honor the person 
as made in the image of God as an individual and listen to them. So teachability is a huge part of it. Like instead of, you know, popping off and getting angry, like if you want to write an angry tweet, write it, but save the draft until later. Uh, You know, think you, you, we've had this conversation before. You don't need to comment on everything right this second. So part of it is like, just cool down a little bit, you know, have a cooling down period. I mean, it used to be, you know, you, you write a letter, an angry letter, and then you set it on your desk and wait to send it. You now we just hit the send button or whatever. Uh, Make sure you have an undo button on your email. uh, So you can unsend things, you know, put things on a delay, Um, any of that, like in the medium. So part of it's just pausing, being a little bit, more deliberate and waiting um, and it, getting to know different people with different perspectives in real life whom you care about, like learning to care about them and then learning to listen to them broadens your perspective that I think tempers your anger because you're thinking, well, I'm not, if I may have to say a hard truth, but I'm going to say it in a way that it's tender to this person that I actually really like, that is a friend of mine that I don't want to punch me in the face, that I don't want to be offended or to break the relationship with. So it doesn't mean you get out of saying hard things. It just means that you say it in a way that is ultimately designed for a loving purpose and for a purpose of restoration and wholeness. And I think even, I mean, just thinking about biblically, the, the object of God's anger is not usually the outside world and people who don't know God. It's typically, God's usually angry with his own people. Judgment comes first to the household yeah. of God. Yeah, and the, so, the presumptuous. You look at who Jesus is. Jesus is not angry with the, the tax collectors or the sinners. He's angry with the religious leaders. And the, the temple itself is the central place of God's worship and people. And so often it seems like God is most angry at hypocrisy mm-hmm. um, and anger at when God's people fail to be God's people in the place he's called them to. And so I think that's another good rule of like not just getting angry about things out in the world or XYZ politician or whatever, but looking at the church itself first. And then, you know, and that's also like a good rule, maybe even looking at your own community in your household, like, if my anger is more directed toward people that I'm close relationship with, um, first of all, that protects me because I have to do life with them and I need to think about how to interact with them after I express my anger. But also, like, people that I'm closest with, I have more insight into what's going on. I don't know if that makes sense. Like, I think so, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'd added three quick things um, to these. You know, One, I would say I always tell people don't do angerous therapy. In mm-hmm. other words, you know, it can't be just, uh, well, I need to vent. I mean, there may be people you need to vent to, in which case pick a small group of folks, mm-hmm. you know, who know. I mean, there's the kind of gallows humor that physicians talk to other physicians, pastors talk to other pastors, so on. But don't just spout off because that's your way of feeling better. Um, that's not healthy and that's not good for anybody and certainly not good. You're going to hurt people in that regard. Number journaling one, so is don't, good for that. Journaling is good for that. Yeah. So don't do anger. Th- you know, prayer is good for that. Prayer right. The Psalms yeah. are full of that. Yep. Uh, don't do anger therapy. Number one. Uh, number two, don't let anger replace action. You know, a, a, a retweet does not an activist make. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, I think they call this, uh, it's Leslie Rasmussen, who's a, a member at our church. She's also a professor at uh, Xavier and studies social media. She says there's a term for this now called slacktivism, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, thinking that by being appropriately outraged at the right things online, that makes you on the on the right side of history or on the uh, that, that you can check your box that you're actively engaged. But that's not constructive 
um, anger in the sense of if anger's if there's wrongs that exist in the world, we need to get involved. If we're really angry, you can't just put an angry post. You can't just say, well, I'm on the right side of this issue. You've got to do something. And that's what you definitely see Jesus and the apostles and the prophets doing throughout all of the, the biblical storyline. And then the third thing I would say is when with regard to anger, um, there's many facets of how anger ought to be uh, rightly channeled to make real change happen in, within God's people and, and, and our influence in the world. And I'll quote another Washington, D.C. Uh, pastor, Russ Whitfield. Um, he says, you know, everybody wants to be a prophet. You know, the prophet comes in and boom, drops, with, with, specifically with regard to anger, right? Drops the bomb of like, this is what is wrong. And that's, frankly, in some ways, that's the easiest thing to do. It's hard then for somebody to come alongside then be to the to look at the crowd who hears what the prophet says and sees the wounded conscience and says, okay, now I've got the priestly duty of this person who's been pricked um, by the prophetic word. How do we help them think about how to change? What does repentance look like? But then what does forgiveness look like in the midst of that? That's hard work. And then the kingly duty of how do we construct a community that begins to embody this right action? So the prophet can be the conference speaker, can be the tweeter, can be whatever, the blogger, and you just drop the bombs. But the uh, harder work and the longer work um, and the more difficult work, perhaps, you might say, is that that priestly and kingly kind of stuff, too. And they all need to happen, I think. All right, great. We're going to take a short break, and Brian's going to preview some things upcoming in New City. Well, we are now in the season of Lent, and as we're leading up to Easter, there's a a few things going on. A lot of our groups are ongoing. We've got some women's Bible studies happening, some men's wisdom groups, and of course, our community groups, which is probably the best way to get connected to the life of the church outside of Sunday morning. So if you're not in a community group, you can visit the website, fill out a form to get some information about those. Those are ongoing throughout March and through the end of the school year few specific things coming up. We've got our infertility and adoption prayer group on Sunday, March 8th, 7.30 for women. If that's part of your story, infertility and adoption, we'd love for you to meet with some other gals for a time of sharing and prayer. Our free sale is coming up Saturday, March 14th from 9 to noon. It's a great chance to to pick up some free things for um, kids' clothes, women's clothes, those sorts of things. Our men's retreat is April 24th and 25th, still a ways off, but our early bird registration is open and the early bird, early bird registration deadline is March 20th. It's also a women's happy hour happening at the end of the month. That's Monday, March 30th at 5.30. So a few chances for folks to get together um, and visit some of the things going on. Well, let's, let's pivot a little bit um, because after the anger of Jesus, right, you see the the demand for a sign in the story. And Jesus says, destroy the temple three days, you'll raise it up again. What are we supposed to see there? Do you think? Well, I mean, in the gospels, I can't remember if it's John in front of me, but you know, Jesus says he's, well, actually John, they say he's talking about the temple of his body, talking about his death and resurrection. He's talking about, um, that this temple, this, this, this edifice that is the people built is not, God's desire, ultimately his desire is to be with us um, in a renewed creation where there is no injustice and there is no hypocrisy and there is no poverty and there's no abuse of, of others and all these things. And um, To me, it points to the fragility of all of our institutions um, and the 
temporariness of everything. The, the, our longing and our hope is for the new heavens and the new earth and the, the, the kingdom to come and all, where all the wrongs will be made right. You know, I, I agree. And there's a sense in which, you know, the sign that Jesus offers here, destroy the temple or raise it again in three days. They're confused. And John, John's own commentary, as you said, is he was talking about the symbol of his body. He's always coming back to this. I mean, if there's a, a sign among the signs, the sign to which all the other signs point, it is his death and resurrection. It's always on his mind. It's his mission. And uh, everything that Jesus is ramping up toward is toward this. His teaching points toward this. His moral life points toward this. His te- his, uh, uh, the, the miracles point toward this. And it's always on his mind. And that is, um, in some ways, it's the, it's the key to understanding um, the life of Jesus and how all these things come together. And so you get these two stories, John 2, you get the wedding at Cana. Jesus is extending the party and by turning water into wine. And the very next story is this one where he's kicking people out of the temple. How do these things go together? Well, they both have to do in some ways pointing toward what Jesus is about. You know, he's turning water into wine. He's going to the cross uh, for us and then we'll be raised to bring people with him into the kingdom of God, which is going to be a place of abundance. Hmm. Uh, On the other hand, he's coming to the temple and he's seeing a worship that does not look like a rightful worship of God. He knows that for uh, worship in the temple to be purified one day, it's going to take the destruction of his own temple, of his own body in order for this to happen and a resurrection to a new life. I also think of just how this story is just wonderful for the whole uh, season of Lent in general, uh, and maybe we can close with this. Richard Holloway has a Scottish writer has this uh, uh, reflection. Uh, he says, "This is my dilemma. I am dust and ashes, frail and wayward. A set of predetermined behavioral responses, riddled with fear, beset with needs. The quintessence of dust and unto dust I shall return. But there is something else in me. Dust I may be." but troubled dust, dust that dreams, dust that has strong premonitions of transfiguration, of a glory in store, a destiny prepared, an inheritance that will one day be my own. So my life is spread out in a painful dialectic between ashes and glory, between weakness and transfiguration. I am a riddle to myself, an exasperating enigma, the strange duality of dust and glory. We'll leave it there, I think. Make sure that you... uh, if you're listening and enjoy Marginalia, make sure and give us a little review either on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts, and uh, we'll see you next week. See you later. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Marginalia. For show notes or for more information about New City Presbyterian Church, please visit our website at newcitycincy.org. That's New City. C-I-N-C-Y dot org. Thanks for listening.